This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. The headline in a recent edition of the New York Times, a new chief chaplain at Harvard, an atheist. Talking about Greg Epstein, he's author of a book, Good Without God. He is an atheist. The New York Times, however, draws a direct line between him and the nuns, people who, when asked about the religious affiliation, say none of the above. Is that an easily drawn line, and is there something missing, a few things missing, from the New York Times story on the new chief chaplain at Harvard. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Doesn't it kind of make sense for (laughs) the 21st century Harvard to have an atheist as its head chaplain? I mean, is it really news? Well... There's so many different ways to answer that. I think it is news, but I'm not sure the New York Times has really done a complete job of telling us why it's valid news in this case. Friends of mine who are connected with Harvard would say that the dominant religious worldview at Harvard right now is kind of religiously liberal. It's kind of woke religion forms. And when you think of that, you think of you know, you think of liberal mainline Protestantism, you think of liberal Catholicism, etc. I'm sure that there is a lively atheist community or humanist community at Harvard. And from all indications in this story, this man has done a wonderful job of leading it. And it's also clear that many of his colleagues in the chaplain's office of Harvard believe that he's a very effective administrator. And we, we hear from some of them in this story, but it's very interesting. At one key moment, a, a Lutheran, uh-oh, generic Lutheran alert. Um, Kathleen Reed, the Lutheran chaplain who chaired the nominating committee that picked him, noted that he was the first choice of a committee that was made up of a Lutheran, a Christian scientist, an evangelical Christian, and a Baha'i. Now, What stands out in there to me is the evangelical Christian, of course, because of the history of kind of combat on the Harvard campus involving whether evangelical ministries will be welcome, will they be allowed to be on campus, and InterVarsity in particular fought over that. And so I immediately thought if you were going to show that this man was a very effective administrator and and had the ability to dialogue and work with all kinds of people, I mean, I'm not surprised that he works well with an ELCA chaplain, you know, who was the head of the committee. A few clicks of a mouse, and you find out that this is an ELCA chaplain, and that there is a Lutheran center that she leads. To me, if you're going to show his ability to get along with others and be kind of a winsome presence on campus who leads to dialogue, to me... The article really needs to hear, let you hear from people from other groups on campus. And I did a a few clicks of a mouse. That chaplaincy office is very interesting. I mean, there are at least two or three Southern Baptist chaplains at Harvard. 
There are representatives of Campus Crusade for Christ. There are six people registered in the current list on the chaplain's office who are from InterVarsity, a group that some time ago, you know, was threatened with being kicked off campus. You have Orthodox Christian, you have uh, an Orthodox Jewish chaplain, you have a Latter-day Saint chaplain, and then there's an intriguing group called the Reformed University Fellowship, which I would assume is probably PCA Presbyterian or Evangelical Presbyterian, some kind of vital conservative form of Reformed thought. And then the group I wanted to hear from the most is the fascinating religious group that actually was born at Harvard 20 years ago. And that's the group called the Veritas Forum, which you probably have heard of. They're now on campuses across the country. And that that's a very interesting dialogue and programmatic group that started at Harvard. And if you were going to research interfaith dialogue or religious dialogue at Harvard, you're going to hit the Veritas Forum really quickly. Well, this is another one of those cases where we've only got half a story here. And the half that's here is told really well. It's just like, okay, where's the rest of the story? What about the connection that the article attempts to make between an atheist head chaplain there at Harvard and the number of students that are identifying as nuns, none of the above? Yeah, that's really interesting. And of course, you're not going to be at all surprised that I'm going to quote our friend Ryan Berg, a Get Religion contributor and a guy who's now a, a major force in American media in terms of his ability to parse out crucial data out of polling that has to do with religion and politics. He wrote a book on the nuns, which came out, and I wrote a column about it a couple of months ago. And he notes, for example, that if you conflate nuns with atheist agnostic, you're actually missing the biggest story related to the category of the religiously unaffiliated. So the story presents this man as a very good leader working with atheist agnostics, and then by the people they choose to interview, the implication is he's really good working with people who are escaping conservative forms of religion. And the implication is that's the nuns. That's the religiously unaffiliated. Well, what Ryan has pointed out is that the fastest growing people in American life is a group that he calls nothing in particular. And these are people who are not affiliated with a religious organization, but they have to varying degrees, they definitely still have a religious point of view. He also notes that they're overwhelmingly blue collar, they're among the least educated part of the American population, and they're among the most economically kind of oppressed or put out people in the American life. This is the, the failed blue collar people that we hear about so much that were attracted in some ways to Donald Trump in some cases and not in others. But anyway, nothing in particular is not the same thing as atheist or agnostic. And the story makes no distinction at all between a growing community of atheists and agnostics and humanists and this much larger group of people called nothing in particular, some of whom may pray every day, some of them may still have kind of their own personal made-up form of religion that they still kind of hang on to, but they're not a part of any organized religious group. So I was left at the end wondering, okay, 
who at Harvard is in charge of the lives of reaching out to the nothing in particular people? Or are those people even at Harvard, you know, because of economic disadvantage, educational disadvantage? But the, the story needed to tell us a little bit more about who the nuns are that are at Harvard. I would also note that if you if you read the 2012 study by the Pew Forum that gave us the the term nuns and religiously unaffiliated, if you get down into the weeds of that study, you discover that the evangelicals and conservative forms of religion are actually doing a better job of holding on to their young people and even winning converts out of no religion type people, they're doing a whole lot better job of that than the liberal kind of mushy mainstream, the old mainstream American religion kind of there in the middle in what I like to call Oprah America. That's where the nuns are statistically coming from, and the new atheists and the agnostics are overwhelmingly coming from there. Well, if this guy is really really good at dealing with those kinds of people, this should be really great news for not only for his humanist group, it should be really great news for the liberal mainline churches at Harvard because they fit the ethos of Harvard and they fit the ethos of this kind of dropping out of organized religion crowd since they're coming out of the mainline churches in large part. I hope that made sense. The big picture there is that the nuns are more complex than they are portrayed in this story. And if you read this story carefully, you'd really get the impression that the nuns, the new atheists, and the new agnostics are all fleeing conservative forms of religion. And the polls don't show that. Yes, some are, but that's not where most of these people are coming from. The polls also show that the nuns are not college-educated by and large. They're less yeah, college-educated exactly. than any other religious group. Yeah, that was my point. So I wonder the degree to which there is a community of nothing in particulars at Harvard. And if so, who's talking to them? Because they wouldn't fit well in the atheist group. Let me just read you a section of an interview I did with Ryan Berg about that. He says, when you say nuns and all you think about is atheist agnostics, you're not seeing the big picture. Atheists have a community. Atheists have a belief system. They're highly active when it comes to politics and public institutions. But these nothing in particular Americans don't have any of that. They're struggling. They're disconnected from American life in so many ways. Well, maybe that's too much complexity for a long story in the New York Times. But I would have liked to have known more about who makes up the nuns and just not assume that this guy has a, a growing flock of former conservative Jews and former conservative Catholics and whatever, that that's who he's ministering to primarily. Because if so, that doesn't have a whole lot to do with the nuns phenomena. So, Terry, they did mention in the beginning of the story that Harvard was founded essentially as a religious institution. It was to train ministers. But they kind of left out the fact 
that the entire Ivy League was found was thus founded. Yeah, this these all of these and many other uh, universities were founded largely with Christian sensibilities, with a Christian worldview, and even with Christian aims. I think Harvard still, even the age of wokeism, has its original <laughs> motto that includes yeah. something about the church. Which means that another part of the story is Harvard is a wonderful symbol in many ways, and the Ivy League, and the whole New England region, in many ways is a symbol of the current state of the liberal mainline Protestant world. These were their meccas. This was where they kind of, to some degree, exhibited their power, which means that if you understand what happened to Harvard in terms of religious faith and other things, then you understand a lot about what happened to the shrinking section of the American religious marketplace. This would have been an opportunity because I assume that the leaders of the mainline Protestant and the more liberal religious groups are among those who work best with this guy. Let me give you an example of something. Years ago, I wrote a column when InterVarsity got into a fight with Duke University. And Duke University was historically a Methodist school, which became kind of non-sectarian and presented itself as very non-religious. And the woman who led the InterVarsity chapter at Duke made a fascinating observation. The things that got them thrown off campus were, of course, all about sexuality and theology related to marriage and sex. What she thought was fascinating, she made the case that Duke was now a liberal Methodist school, that for InterVarsity to stay on campus, it had to be willing to accept the doctrines of liberal Methodist life. And so she, she argued that Duke should be more honest now and say that they have a doctrinal code and that if you can't sign their doctrinal code, you're not allowed to minister on the campus at Duke. Well, I mean, to me now, so what's the current situation at Harvard? I would have liked to have known if, you know, the degree to which it, these evangelical groups are welcome on the campus. Do any of them receive student fees, funds, the way the other religious groups do? In other words, part of this story is how well does this man, this fascinating man, how well does he get along with the evangelical world on campus. And there is an evangelical world of InterVarsity and other groups on the Harvard campus. There was one phrase that jumped out at me in the New York Times story when they're talking about how successful he is. There's a paragraph that begins, the dozens of students whom Mr. Epstein mentors have found a source of meaning in the school's organization of humanists, atheists, and agnostics reflecting a broader trend of young people across the United States who increasingly identify as spiritual but religiously unaffiliated. Now, there's so much in that one sentence to unpack. That phrase, increasingly identify as spiritual but religiously unaffiliated, that's, yeah, that, that captures it. Yet I'm not sure that those are automatically students who would identify with atheism or agnosticism or would feel completely at home in an organization for atheists 
and agnostics and humanists. The other thing, it, it made the impression that this guy's ministry was just really booming at Harvard. Well, the phrase, the dozens of students who Mr. Epstein mentors, made me pause and think. Dozens of students in the atheist, agnostic, and humanist organization at Harvard, that's not all that big a group when you consider how many people that kind of fit into that worldview are at Harvard. There are dozens of students in that group. The InterVarsity Network at Harvard has six staff members. It left me wondering, if this guy has dozens of people in his group, how many people are in the InterVarsity chapter? How many people are in the Latter-day Saint chapter? How many people are in the Southern Baptist organizations? How many are there in organizations related to the black church, more evangelical and conservative forms of the black church. I had all kinds of questions, and they were all about the other half of this story. And I, I guess just to sum it up really briefly, if you had found an inner varsity chapter leader and interviewed him or her for this story, and this inner varsity leader had said, you know, we had a lot of trouble Years ago in InterVarsity, we thought we were going to get thrown off the campus. But with people like Greg Epstein, he's done a fantastic job of getting Harvard to understand that we're a part of the community too. So yeah, he's an atheist, but he's been really fair-minded to us. And that's why we kind of backed his candidacy. Now, if you had had material like that in this story, and if that's the case, wouldn't that have made this a stronger story if the goal was to prove that this guy is a bridge builder and a networker who works with everybody? Wouldn't that have helped? So finally here, why the silence on what is obviously an evangelical presence and should be part of this story about the atheist chaplain in the New York Times? Well, I don't know. It took me 30 seconds to find the list of the current members of the chaplain's office at Harvard. I'm sure that's something the the New York Times reporter must have looked at, and if they didn't, why the heck not? And there's their emails, and there's their phone numbers, and there's contacts. If you wanted to find out that this guy really is a coalition builder and that he's led to kind of a new day when people on both sides of the divides inside the religiously unaffiliated and the divides inside Harvard. If you wanted to show that, why didn't you interview people from the other side of the religious spectrum? Why only talk to people who have fled conservative religion, two or three of them in the story? Why only talk to the mainline Protestant liberals who backed his situation and his new job? Why just talk to them when you could have made it a much better story, a story that proved your main point better with a more diverse collection of facts and voices? Why not talk to those other people? And even the evangelical group that was born at Harvard, out of all of that tension and distrust just 20 years ago, why not talk to the Veritas Forum people? Give them a call. Terry Mattingly is a senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. 
He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.